Well, if you haven't already, if you have your Bibles with you, open them to the John's Gospel, the, well, the very end of the second chapter and into the third chapter will be our text today, John's Gospel, we're in a series in John's Gospel, the Word became flesh, this is number eight, and today we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. I, I really couldn't come up with a better title than Jesus and Nicodemus, I, nothing catchy, nothing, so I just, well, it's Jesus and Nicodemus, I mean, you know. So, that's it, sorry, um, <laughs> hope that'll do, but um, <clears throat> if you would, join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts to receive God's word. Heavenly Father, your words are light and they are life to us. Through your words, our hearts are enabled to see Christ, to trust in him. Lord, we ask that you would do that wondrous work in our midst and in our hearing today. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm uh, trying to, there we go. Our text is John chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 23. Uh, if I were creating chapter breaks, that's where I would put the beginning of chapter 3, is at John, right above John 2, 23. And we'll go through the 21st verse of that chapter. What does it mean to see the kingdom of God and enter it? What does it mean to be born again? Why is it essential? What is eternal life? How does eternal life relate to the kingdom of God? Well, today's text speaks to all these questions and more. The most well-known verse in the Bible is actually in our text today. You're probably quite familiar with it. I think it's the most well-known, at least in small part, due to Billy Graham. Regardless, most English-speaking people have heard this verse, and a great number of people can actually quote this verse, and for good reason. It may be the clearest and most succinct summary statement of the gospel that's been written. It touches on almost every major category of theology. <clears throat> For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. I don't know what version that is that I just quoted. I just know that it can roll off my lips without even thinking about it. For God, there's a category of theology, the doctrine of God. So love the world, the doctrine of man. Okay? That he gave his only son, the doctrine of Christ. That whoever believes in him, oh, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, would not perish but have everlasting life, and even touches on eschatology, the judgment to come. All of those are touched on in one verse, and you could share the gospel from that verse, touching on everything there. We'll be zooming in to examine the story of Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night. But first, I think it will help to zoom out and consider how that story fits into the storyline of John's gospel. The previous section began with Jesus and his disciples in Cana in Galilee at a wedding and ended with them in Jerusalem at the temple. In this section... It begins with them in Jerusalem in, in chapter 2, 23, and they wind up in Cana in chapter 4, 4, verse 46. 
passing through Judea and Samaria along the way. So the storyline went from Cana to Jerusalem. Now it goes from Jerusalem back to Cana. And that kind of helps us understand that we're being communicated to in, in units and themes. And these stories somewhat tie together and helps keep thought together in, 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 in a narrative-type culture. From the outset, we are told that Jesus knows all people. And we'll look at that in just a moment. Even the unseen aspects inside of them. And then at each of these locations, we're told about a particular person. Each of these stories about these particular people tells us something about what is in people. And what can be in people when the Spirit works in them. Interestingly, each of the stories has a reference to water. These four people are very different from each other. In Jerusalem, we have Nicodemus, the most, un, or excuse me, the most likely character by outward appearance to be worthy of entrusting oneself to. He is a key leader of the Jews who comes under the cover of darkness and turns out to actually be the darkest character of the four. Each of the next three contrasts with Nicodemus in some way. Jesus and his disciples move on to Judea, and we hear about John the Baptist, though John's location is a bit more mysterious. <clears throat> He's not the light, but is the most enlightened person that we're going to encounter of the four. Unlike the teacher of Israel, who Nicodemus is called, John teaches truth about Jesus. In Samaria, we find the most unlikely of characters, a Samaritan woman who's been married five times and was living with another man at a well in the brightest part of the day. Nicodemus came in the dark at night. She came in the brightest part of the day. She clearly understands things over which Nicodemus was quite puzzled. And then finally, in Cana of Galilee, we meet a royal official, a Gentile ruler. Not only is he not a ruler of Jewish people as a Jew, but he's a Gentile ruler, an oppressor. But he believes. So let's turn our attention to this first character, Nicodemus. In John, uh, under the heading, Jesus sees, we're going to begin in John 2, verse 23. Now... <clears throat> While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. This is speaking of Jesus. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind. The, the word there, man, anthropos, we get anthropology. That's not just a store in the mall, but it actually has a meaning. Anthropology, it's the study of man of people, of humanity. And so it's just the general word for people, for humanity, for mankind. Uh, he did not need any testimony about people, you might say, for he knew what was in people, in each person. Same word, anthropos. <clears throat> Jesus does not relate to you in the same way that you relate to him. Just think about that for a moment. Jesus does not relate to you in the same way that you relate to him. People believed or entrusted themselves to Jesus, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. And it's the same word that we use for believes, entrusted, did not entrust himself to. It's the same word that they believed in him. He didn't entrust or believe in them, so to speak. He didn't entrust himself to them. In other words, his relationship to those who believe is not the same as their relationship to him. Why not? Because he knows you. Just think about it for a moment. 
The more you know about Jesus, the more trustworthy he is. The more you know about yourself, the more you will understand why he can't entrust himself to you. And if you don't understand that, it's probably because you don't know yourself well enough yet. The more we really understand ourselves, the more we understand why this would be true. And why new birth is essential. And we'll talk about that. I'm not suggesting that you should not strive to be trustworthy. You should indeed strive to be trustworthy. John the Baptist in the next scene will provide an example of one who is trustworthy, but Nicodemus is not. It is clear throughout John's gospel that the only requirement for eternal life is that we believe, that we entrust ourselves to Jesus. However, there's an inference here in these verses we just read that there's a distinction between authentic faith and inauthentic faith. That There are those who believe, but Jesus He's not just taking everything at face value. He understands that there might be some distinction to be made here. In order to understand the Nicodemus story, which follows here immediately, we must understand it in light of verses 24 and 25, especially verse 25. In particular note, it says in verse 25 that he did not need any testimony about people, mankind, anthropos, humanity, You see, credentials were everything in that world. And by the way, not much has changed. Paul talks about that in Philippians. He had all the credentials. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Of the tribe of Benjamin. He lists his credentials. But he he says he counted all that loss that he might know Christ. He, he, He forsook it all. Today, there's plenty of testimony offered about mankind to suggest that people are basically good. Jesus wasn't interested in that testimony He isn't today interested in that testimony. He knows what is in people. He knows. And by the way, if he thought that people were basically good, he probably wouldn't say they must be born again. Just saying. He probably would not have said they must be born again. Jesus sees every human heart clearly. It goes on to say, for he knew what was in each person. In each one. This this explains why Jesus didn't need to know someone's pedigree. He already knew what was in a person. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord, and this is Samuel uh, uh, has gone to Jesse's household, and he's lining up. The Lord told him to go there to pick the new king of Israel after Saul was was outed by the Lord. And and so Jesse's lining up his sons, and, and the Lord tells Samuel, Do not consider, referring to one of the sons, his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple uh, to the Lord. He says, for you alone know every human heart. But like Yahweh, Jesus knows every human heart, according to our text here in John. This explains why he knew everything about the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You may be familiar with that story. He knew all her life. Let's see what he knows about Nicodemus. I'm going to read verse 25 again, and then we'll read right into chapter 3. Jesus did not need any testimony about mankind, anthropos, for he knew what was in each person, anthropos. Now there was a man, anthropos. It's important that you catch that chain of words there he didn't need any testimony about a man for he knew what was in each man now there was a man 
of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man, or he, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I think Nicodemus is suggesting an offer to Jesus. He came to Jesus at night. Now in verse 19, which we'll get to at the end of the message, Jesus explains why Nicodemus came at night, lest his deeds be exposed, and invites him and us to come into the light. But for now, Nicodemus isn't interested in coming into the light. He comes at night. Nicodemus can't see that Jesus sees right through him. Nicodemus thinks that he's being coy. He gives lip service to Jesus being a teacher, but how deeply he believes that will come into question as we read through the story. In verse 1, we're told that Nicodemus is a man of the Pharisees, meaning that he's one of the group of the Pharisees, and that he is a ruler, it goes on to say. Now, we have good reason to think that Nicodemus came representing the Jerusalem Pharisees and possibly the whole Jewish ruling council. He was a big cheese in Jerusalem. He was high up. He had clout. He had power in Jerusalem. And he comes saying, we know, means that he's speaking on behalf of the group. He's not coming representing himself. He's coming representing the group. Okay? This isn't Nicodemus quietly going off to the side because he doesn't want his friends to know he's there. No, they sent him. We know. He's representing them. We know that you are a teacher come from God. Because no man could do the things that you're doing unless God's with him. He comes to Jesus, I believe, to offer a stamp of approval from high-ranking Jewish leaders. Now, if you can get the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to give you credentials, well then, you're somebody. You're going to make it as a rabbi. For, for a rabbi's teaching career, that would have been the same, would have the same impact as Simon Cowell's repeated comments that Carrie Underwood would win the competition and sell more records than any previous artist in American Idol history. That turns out to be true. Not because he said it, but it certainly didn't help her get a leg up when he said it. She had to have the talent, but credentials matter. And when somebody like that says that, suddenly the attention of the recording world is going to look on her. Nicodemus is coming and saying, hey, we know. What is he saying? He's saying, we'll, we'll give you some credentials. We'll give you some credentials. That's what you're interested in. We'll give you some credentials. However, Nicodemus didn't do it publicly like Simon Cowell did. Why? He came in the dark of the night. Something he must negotiate first. No credentials without an agreement. We've got to have an agreement before we're going to give you any credentials, Rabbi. An agreement that will keep these leaders in power. See, that, that's what they want. Jesus threatens their position of power, and that's eventually why they want to kill him later in the gospel, is the threat that he poses to their power and authority and position. But first, they'll attempt to control him. Now, this is supported by the fact that at the end of the chapter, we have a contrasting character, John the Baptist, 
who is glad to give up his position and power in deference to Jesus. I mean, if you look at John the Baptist at the end of the chapter, he's rejoicing in the fact that everybody's going to Jesus. Yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. Not Nicodemus and his pals. No, they're not rejoicing in that whatsoever. He's coming in the night because he's trying to negotiate a deal with Jesus. We know. In other words, we'll, 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 we'll admit that you're a teacher that's come from God, but he wants something first. Nic Nicodemus and his pals are the opposite of John the Baptist. Nicodemus fails to understand that not only does Jesus not need testimony about people, but neither does Jesus need a man's testimony about himself, about Jesus, at least not of the sort that Nicodemus is offering. He doesn't need their authority, nor will he submit to their authority. So Jesus rejects their offer. Look at ver verse 3. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, or amen, amen, truly, truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. I don't know if you've ever noticed reading through this that like Nicodemus didn't ask Jesus a question. And what Jesus said appears to have no relationship to what Nicodemus had just said. Have you ever noticed that? Basically, Jesus abruptly interrupts him and changes subjects. I mean, it, if it isn't rude, it really gets awfully close to rude, at least from an earthly level. Nicodemus hadn't even said enough to warrant a response. Maybe Nicodemus paused in order to get a, a read on Jesus and how Jesus might respond to this implied offer of credentials. Maybe Jesus just cut him off at the pass before he could finish making his offer because Jesus knows what is in his heart before he even has a chance to say it. <clears throat> Either way, Jesus' answer doesn't seem to address anything Nicodemus said. It is as if there is a short circuit. But the words are loaded with meaning. Jesus definitely has Nicodemus' attention. Nicodemus and his Pharisee cohorts have been longing to see the kingdom of God. That's what their whole Pharisee club was about. Seeing the kingdom of God. That's why they were Pharisees. They wanted to usher in the kingdom of God. What does it mean to see the kingdom of God to Nicodemus? What did that mean to him when Jesus said it? Or, for that matter, that he couldn't see the kingdom of God if he wasn't born again. <clears throat> to understand what is meant in John's gospel by eternal life, which we'll get to later in the text, we have to first understand what is meant by seeing the kingdom of God. I don't think we can understand what's meant by eternal life until we understand what is meant by seeing the kingdom of God. And many think that, that, that they mean essentially the same thing. The logic goes, I think, something like this. To see the kingdom of God is to go to heaven. To have eternal life is to go to heaven. Therefore, the two must be the same thing. Or almost the same thing. But that isn't what those terms meant to Nicodemus. Don't get me wrong. I do think you go to heaven if you have eternal life. Okay? I, do, I do think you do. Uh, but that, that's more of a consequence of having eternal life, not actually what eternal life is. Okay? The, the kingdom of God was the long-awaited-for coming kingdom of the Messiah. This is the one promised 
who would come and be enthroned on David's throne, the one who would free them from oppression. We usually talk about this at Christmas with verses like Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government, ding, 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 the kingdom of God. The government will be on his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, ding, 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 ding. These are important phrases to them. This is what they were hoping for, a new government with a new king who would bring peace to them and prosperity and the blessing of God and joy and, and, and the harvest would be rich again and their enemies would be, would be silenced. On the throne, uh, a government and peace will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Or as Jeremiah 23, 5 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king, who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. You, you get a sense of what was expected by the, the response of the people in John 6 when Jesus multiplied the bread and fed the, the multitudes. It says in, in, in John 6, 15 that they intended to come and make him king by force. Hey, he's, he's the one, and we're going to make him king. We're going we're to go up there and chase Pilate out and everyone else out, Herod out, and we're going to make him king by force. That would have been a bloodbath. Wouldn't have been a good scene. But that gives you some idea of what it meant to them to see the kingdom of God, this coming messianic king that would set them free. The fervor they had for that isn't too different than the fervor we've seen in our own country over both sides, from both sides of the political debate over who's going to be president and what, what great change that's going to bring to our country if their candidate gets in. I would suggest their hopes are poorly based in either case, but our hope needs to be in another place. Nicodemus cannot see this messianic kingdom, nor for that matter will he be able to see the king himself unless he is born again. And by the way, neither can anyone else. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now that obviously, since he's talking to Nicodemus, implies strongly he's saying you can't be, but it means none of us can see the kingdom of God unless we are born again. Because that's what it says. Which speaks to man's need. Jesus knows what is in people. And therefore knows that all people must be born again. He knows that we already stand condemned, as later we'll, our verses will indicate. And unless God provides a means of pardon, we cannot be part of the king's kingdom. We have already rebelled against the king, and we already have a death sentence on us. So unless there's a means of pardon, we can't be a part of this king's kingdom. Until this takes place, a person won't be able to see the kingdom. Or the king. You see, this king will have a rather odd throne. He really will. He'll have a, a really odd throne, especially as it's described in John's gospel. New birth is required to see the king's glory on this throne, to even understand that it is a throne. A throne, of course, Jesus' exaltation and glory is where he's lifted up and exalted on a cross. But one can't see that as a king apart from new birth. 
Jesus sees right through Nicodemus' phony affirmation and tells him that he must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And this draws a reaction from Nicodemus. Nicodemus can't understand. Read with me in verse 4. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, or amen, amen, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God, not even you and your pals, unless they are born of water and the Spirit. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. The the words cannot or how can show up six times in verses 2 through 9. Four of these are in verses 4 through 9. Verse 4 begins with uh, Nicodemus asking how can, and verse 9 ends the section with how can question again. So issues of possibility and impossibility should stand out in this section. What's possible, what's impossible? How are they possible? It's kind of highlighted by the actual word choice that's, that's here. Nicodemus' incredulity, how can this be, raises some doubt as to whether he really believed that God was with Jesus, enabling him to do things otherwise impossible. I mean, he says, we know you're a teacher come from God, because how can anyone do these things that you're doing unless God is with him? That's where one of the other ones is in verse 2. How can... But there he's seeming to acknowledge that Jesus can do amazing things, but suddenly he doesn't think Jesus can do much of anything. Jesus' responses might work against this idea. He seems to take Nicodemus seriously, but it seems to me that Nicodemus is acting dumber than he really is. I think he's mocking Jesus in a sort of way here. Follow me for a minute. In verse 10, Jesus does seem to take him seriously, and we'll get to that. Unless Jesus is speaking a little tongue-in-cheek of his own to Nicodemus in return, and I think he might be. But Nicodemus, and here's why I say it, as the teacher of Israel, which Jesus calls him, uh, Nicodemus, he was not unfamiliar with the concept of new birth. This was not a new idea to him. Okay, he was quite familiar with it. Uh, the rabbis would have talked out of a book of Ezekiel, how it talks there about this, this spirit transforming them and, and the water of the spirit, that this would have been in their mind. They talked about it as new birth. And, and they actually baptized Gentiles who were coming in to be converted into Judaism, and they called that a new birth, that they're being born again as a Jew. So the idea of new birth is not foreign to Nicodemus. Now, it is offensive when Jesus says, Nicodemus, you, uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, a guy at the top of the pedigree chart, needs to be born again. Now, that is offensive, but not something he really doesn't understand or even how. If Jesus really is a teacher come from God, then he clearly understands that God could do it, and what would need to be done is a transformation from the inside. Nicodemus just doesn't happen to think he needs that. Okay, so I think Nicodemus is pretending to be stupider than he is and more or less mocking Jesus. Oh, yeah, you're such a great teacher. Will you tell me? You see, if Nicodemus doesn't think that Jesus is anything more than a renegade teacher who needs to be brought under their control, he may be toying with Jesus. Play stupid, see if Jesus can explain it. But Jesus' answer goes beyond anything he would have thought or even expected to come from a good teacher. And John records it because it answers questions that many of us would have about new birth. Jesus expands on what he means. No one, 
And then look, verse 3 said, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And in verse 5 it becomes, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born out of water and spirit. Born from, born of, born out of might be the best way to understand it. Water and spirit. Not only will you not see the kingdom, therefore you will not enter it. So if you don't see it, you don't get to enter it. Okay? You'll not get to participate in it, in other words. Nicodemus wants to participate in this kingdom. He wants to see it in his lifetime, and he wants to participate in it, but he won't get to do either unless he is born again. And then born again is explained more as born out of water and spirit. Now, there are many different interpretations of that phrase, born out of water and spirit, that have been uh, throughout church history, of which the last phrase means, uh, of what that last phrase means. Three broad categories under which most of these fall. Three, three categories. Some have held that being born of water refers to natural human birth, and being born out of spirit refers to rebirth. Now, that actually fits the context well, but not the grammar itself. It doesn't really fit the words that are used very well at all. Um, most scholars agree that out of water and spirit refers to one event, not two, because there's one preposition. The preposition is not repeated. In other words, it's not out of water and out of spirit. It's out of water and spirit. So water and spirit refer to maybe as much, two aspects of the same thing, but it's one thing. Okay? <clears throat> the majority view in church history is that water refers to baptism in some way, and Spirit refers to the baptism of the Spirit, which is how we are born again or regenerated. A large number of evangelical scholars hold that water does not refer to water baptism at all, but is just to be taken as another way to refer to spiritual rebirth. You could support that out of Ezekiel. Regardless, one thing we can know, and by the way, there are convincing arguments on both sides of those last two. The first one, toss it. The last two, they're convincing arguments. I mean, depending on which one I'm reading at the time, I'm like, yeah, that other one's dumb. And then you read the other one, you're like, well, that one's dumb. You know, I mean, they're, they're good arguments on both sides, and I won't, I won't settle it, that's for sure. But, but regardless, one thing we can know. We can know that even if Jesus is referring to water baptism and spirit baptism, he is referring to them as two aspects of one event. That, that water baptism by itself does nothing, that it's with spirit baptism, with the regeneration of the spirit, that, that, that makes all the difference. It is possible that Jesus uses water to capture the idea of baptism in order that we might understand that he's speaking of baptism by the Spirit when he says, and Spirit. It's possible. Jesus explains further, verse 6. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You see, Nicodemus should not be surprised at this saying. He should know that Jesus is referring to spiritual birth. Spirit gives birth to spirit. Then Jesus gives a, a, a mini parable. The wind, spirit, and by the way, the word for wind and spirit are the same word in the original language, whether it would have been Hebrew or Greek, in this case Greek. The, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. In other words, you experience the effects of the wind. But you can't figure out its source or destination. You can't control it. It happens to you. You don't make it happen. 
okay, to put it another way. Those born of the Spirit are born of the Spirit at the pleasure of the Spirit. Let me say that again. Those born of the Spirit are born of the Spirit at the pleasure of the Spirit. Now, this does puzzle Nicodemus. His second, how can this be, is a genuine puzzlement for sure. Whether the first one was or not, I'm not sure, but this one, he, he truly is puzzled. How can this be? It's a serious question. Nicodemus had serious credentials. How can it be that a Hebrew of Hebrews is not able to have free entrance into the Messianic kingdom? Not possible in his mind. Not possible in his mind. That, he, he's already got his ticket punched. When the Messiah comes, he's in the inner circle. That's the way he sees it. Nicodemus doesn't believe. Read with me in verse 10. You, Nicodemus, are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do, and by the way, you are the teacher of Israel. It's got the definite article, which is interesting. It's, he, Jesus is showing how elevated a teacher he was, even in the midst of his companions. You are the teacher of Israel, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you, and NIV here, you people, it's you plural, it's just you plural. It's their way of saying y'all. See, he started the sentence at the beginning, you are Israel's teacher, you singular. But now it's you, you guys, uh, do not believe, or do not accept our testimony. Verse 12, I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you, once again plural, you guys, y'all, do not believe. How then will you, all of you, believe if I speak of heavenly things? Now, when, when Jesus says, we speak, we know, we testify, we have seen, it stands in contrast to the we know that you're a teacher who has come from God in verse 2 that Nicodemus offered. Nicodemus says, we know this, and Jesus says, well, we know this. Okay, it, it's important to catch the, the way the language is used there to help see these contrasts. Therefore, it's reasonable to assume that the plural you of verses 11 and 12, when Jesus says you don't accept our testimony and you do not believe, it's reasonable, I think, to assume that the plural you there is the same group that Nicodemus came representing that he called we. The, the, the Jewish leaders, possibly the Sanhedrin. That's the you that he's speaking to. It could be the Jewish people in general that's being referred to, but according to chapter 2, verse 22, many of them, or verse 23, rather, many of them did believe. Now, <clears throat> if he is referring to this Jewish leadership group that Nicodemus represents, then Jesus sure doesn't believe that they think he's a teacher come from God. You don't accept our testimony. Now, you may have just told me that you do, but you don't. And why don't you? You don't because you don't believe. And then you have to ask the question, who's the we that Jesus is speaking of? You know, when he says, we speak, we know, we testify, we have seen. I can only see one of you. Who are you talking about? <laughs> okay, so, so that raises questions and <clears throat> I think are, are, are good questions. Uh, by the way, their opinions vary widely on this. Apparently, there are 24 different opinions. Fortunately, they're written in German, so I didn't have to read them. 
you know, who would do that? But, but <clears throat> anyway, there are a few that I think are worthy of at least thinking about here. Uh, one, it draws to mind, for instance, John the Apostle's language in 1 John in his letter, uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It's similar language, right? Similar author, similar language. So Jesus could be referring to himself and the disciples, later apostles, we testify, and certainly they were. Some think that it's Jesus and John the Baptist who's mentioned in the next scene who is testifying about Jesus, and certainly they did not accept John the Baptist or his testimony. That would fit as well. It could be that Jesus is referring to the testimony of the Father and himself and or including the Holy Spirit. Any of these three would be consistent with John's gospel and, and the thinking of that gospel. And by the way, there's another alternative. It could be all of the above. This is one where I, I think all of the above is a possible answer. But the Jewish leader's rejection of Jesus is actually a faith problem. Jesus equates their rejection of the testimony about him with their not believing their problem is not a need for more testimony or better testimony. It is one of unbelief. They refuse to believe. And because they do not believe, they cannot see. And because they cannot see, they cannot accept the testimony. The solution is faith and trusting themselves to Jesus. If they cannot believe even the simple matters of which Jesus speaks, how in the world will they possibly understand heavenly matters? Oh, well, Jesus is going to tell them anyway. Read with me in verse 13. Everyone must believe, by the way, and that's where we find ourselves as Jesus begins to expand on heavenly things. Verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, verse 13 simply points out that no human being had ever gone into heaven in order that they may explain heavenly matters to us. However, the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man, Jesus, since he came from there, he knows heavenly things and can tell us all about them. So he shares them. He then refers back to an incident that occurred in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Numbers 21, 1 through 9. You can read about it later. But it's worth looking up and studying. <clears throat> After... Numerous miraculous provisions of the Lord in feeding the people. The people began to grumble against the Lord that, that, that he only brought them out of Egypt so that they would die in the wilderness. By the way, they just experienced miraculous deliverance from enemies and so on and so forth. But, yeah, he wants them to die in the wilderness. They doubt the goodness of God. So the Lord sent serpents among them that bit the people, and those that were bitten died. When the people cried out in repentance, the Lord heard them. He told Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and raise it up high so that everyone could see it. Everyone who looked upon it would live. Look and live. It was really simple. Look and live. You look upon it, you live. Straightforward. Jesus says that just like that, 
the Son of Man, that's Jesus, would be lifted high. Just like that, the Son of Man would be lifted high. Now, Jesus did not expect Nicodemus and his friends to understand this. This is heavenly wisdom. Jesus did not expect that they could study that story in Numbers 21 and realize that God would send a Messiah who would be raised up on a pole from that story in Numbers 21. It's only after the fact, and, and even when Jesus is explaining it to him, it, was, it hadn't even occurred, but it would only be after the fact when Jesus was crucified that we could comprehend fully what he was talking about. But look and live becomes believe and have life unending in verse 15. See, the implication here is that everyone who looks to the Son of Man when he's lifted up, him who is raised up on a pole, will be healed, will be cured, will be made alive, will be born again. Look and live. That's simple. Believe and have life unending. That's simple. Believe and trust yourself to the Son of Man. Then... He goes on to explain this heavenly truth. He's now stated the heavenly truth. Now he's going to explain the heavenly truth. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because... They have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now, for God so loved the world, I know because of the way the old English reads, we we frequently say, you know, for God so loved the world, as if it's talking about how much he loved him. But that's actually what is meant there. It, It is, for in this way, God loved the world. That's what's meant by the so, in this way. In what way? Well, in the way he just described As Moses raised up that serpent on a pole, and now the Son of Man will be lifted up. In that way, God so loved the world that, so that. So it it points to the proceeding, and then it points forward to, to the description. Just like that serpent on a pole, God loved the world, which resulted in him giving his one of a kind son, that whoever believes in him, who looks at him raised up on the cross, whoever believes in him and trusts himself to him, will not be destroyed. They. They will not die like the serpents destroyed the people in the wilderness, but will have eternal life. They'll have life unending. Now, what is this life unending? What is eternal life? I said earlier we'd talk about that when we got to it. Well, here we are. Seeing and entering the kingdom of God, if I might refresh this briefly, is seeing the Messiah and entering his kingdom. Therefore, this life spoken of, is that life which is described throughout the prophets as the life that would exist under the Messiah's reign. Repeatedly in the Old Testament and the prophets, you see the expression, in that day, in that day, in that day, in that day. And when it's referring to the day when the Messiah will reign, the description is about that life that Jesus is talking about here. Descriptions of that day are rich in words like describing peace, joy, fullness, well-being, safety, comfort, and justice. Those are at least some of the big, you know, signs that, that are on the road, if you will, for what that day will be like. It speaks to the kind of life. And then Jesus adds that it is unending. The quality is deep. And the duration is forever. 
The quality is deep, and the duration is forever. But it does not simply mean that I get to go to heaven. Having eternal life is not like a card you punch and put it in your wallet so that when you die, you pull it out and say, oh, I've got eternal life. No. When we see the kingdom and we enter the kingdom through new birth, we begin living the life. And oh, by the way, it's unending, which means if you happen to die, you keep on living it. Wow. That's cool. But don't think that if you don't start living it now, that somehow after you die, you get to start living it. That's not what he's talking about. You see, if it is unending life, then I'll have to be somewhere at all times. And if I happen to die, well, I won't be here because my body will be left behind. I will be there. So, yes, I will be in heaven when I die because I've got to be somewhere. I'm not dying. I'm, I'm living forever. So, yes, it does include going to heaven, but that's not what it is. You, you see the difference there? It's an important distinction. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, we are told, any more than Moses raised up the bronze serpent to condemn the people of Israel to death. Rather, he raised the bronze serpent because they were already judged and condemned to die. The bronze serpent was raised to give them life, to cure the judgment problem. And any of them that refused to look on the serpent would go ahead and die because they'd been judged already. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but if we refuse to look upon him and entrust ourselves to him, well, we've been condemned already, so we can have our lot, or we can entrust ourselves to him. He came to set us free, to forgive us. Jesus sees everything in us. And by the way, he would be a perfect judge if he did come to condemn us, but he didn't come to condemn us. He came to set us free from that, that we might live forever. Amen? <clears throat> The raising of Jesus onto the cross that all might look and live, believe and have life unending is the whole point of Jesus' coming. To look in faith upon Jesus raised up on the cross is to see the king of the kingdom in his glory. In a very real sense, that is his throne. When we see that, we enter into the kingdom and begin living there with a life that will not end. Jesus then explains why Nicodemus came to him at night instead of day and why Nicodemus refuses to come to, into the light. Verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates light, the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now, before you leave, and everybody thinks I'm all down on Nicodemus, I know Nicodemus is some people's favorite Bible character, and I've just painted him in a very dark light. And so I've probably hurt a few people's feelings about Nicodemus, so pay close attention. Before this gospel is over, I mean John's gospel, Nicodemus will go to Jesus in the full light of day at the foot of the cross. He goes to the light at the place in which Jesus is lifted up, Jesus' darkest hour. 
It seems that the Spirit even blows on Nicodemus, the one that Jesus could see right through to his evil intentions. Maybe you've resisted Jesus. Maybe like Nicodemus, you've rejected him previously. But today the Spirit blows again. Christ invites you to come into the light. Yes, your, your deeds will be exposed and you'll be convicted. But in seeing the King on the cross who forgives your sin, who pardons you, by entrusting yourself to Him, you'll enter into His kingdom and experience the life that He offers, and it will be unending. Not even death can cause it to cease. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of His Messiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the Spirit blow in our midst today. Give us eyes to see, hearts to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.